Welcome to Mortals, a podcast where we explore how humans have dealt with death throughout history. From embalming and epitaphs to mourning and morgues, we are taking a look at rites, rituals, and practices from around the world. Mortals podcast is for the morbidly curious or the curiously morbid. This week, we are going to be talking about Victorian mourning material culture. Please be advised that this episode contains discussions of human remains and, of course, death. Hello, everyone. I'm back to talk about some stuff, some things, some objects, as I am prone to do. Um, And this episode, we are going to return to a period of time and space that we have returned to fairly often on this podcast, the Victorian era. Because those freaks are so goddamn interesting from the perspective of this podcast, Mortals. Previously on Mortals, we've discussed how Victorians used human remains in a variety of different ways, most notably, I think, so far in medicine and art. Uh, If this is the first episode of Mortals you have stumbled across and you wish to skip immediately to the other episodes uh, where we talk about the Victorian era or the late 1900s, please refer to episode 3, all about post-mortem photography, and episode 10, the many uses of mummies. The Victorian era is also sprinkled throughout a number of other episodes, which I guess you will just have to listen to our whole catalog if you want to hear about them. (laughs) Just go hunt them down yourself. (laughs) As I mentioned, we are returning to the Victorian era for the next 30 to 40 minutes. Um, We have touched on many of the practices I will be discussing in this episode, but I want to do a deep dive. I want to hold up each practice and shine it in the light so we can see all of the facets of Victorian morning material culture shine bright. I have structured this in a sort of list with four different types of objects. And I wanna offer a quick disclaimer that culture is fluid and people from similar places who even practice similar religions and are of the same socioeconomic class will live in their culture and have opinions about their culture that may differ from their neighbors. Basically, culture is fluid and the list is not exhaustive for every single person living in the Victorian era, and to assume that is stupid. So this is just a kind of general overview of practices that were practiced by some people during this time, or a large number of people during this time. Culture is fluid, and even if you're from the same culture as another person, you're going to experience it differently. With that being said, this list does pertain to many, but not all, middle and upper class white members of British and British colonial individuals who lived in the mid to late 19th century. They all probably practiced at least one of these in some form. So, uh, the four parts of this list. uh, Number one, clothing. Number two, accessories and jewelry. Uh, Three is just hair. I'll come back to that later. Hair just Uh, by itself. Okay. Just on its own. It gets its own spot on the list. And number four uh, might be a surprise to some people, but stationary. (laughs) I will say nothing other than uh, I, love, I, I love good stationery. The the organization is is chef's kiss. <laughs> I love that shit. 
You love a good numbered list. I do. Yeah. <laughs> a little peek into me as a person. Good listicle. So I want to start with clothing, number one on my list, as it appears to be the most universal amongst these traditions. And it also uh, provides me a way to explain where many of these traditions came from. The Victorian era, which refers to the period in the late 19th century, is named after, believe it or not, Queen Victoria, who was the Queen of England and the British Empire. Vicky was a trendsetter in her time, especially when it comes to many women's clothing traditions, some of which even persist into when this podcast is being recorded in 2022. Uh, For example, she started the trend of brides wearing white and of orange blossoms signifying marriage, and she also popularized the wearing of black in times of mourning. Queen Victoria married her husband, Prince Albert, in 1840, but he died 21 years later in 1861. While their marriage was, of course, planned for political advantage and keeping the bloodline pure, yada yada, British royalty, it seemed as if these two people really loved one another and Queen Victoria took his death very hard. She isolated herself and wore black for the remainder of her life, signifying that she never truly left the mourning period. Okay, but that's so sweet. (laughs) It is kind of sweet, yeah. It's it seems when I was reading about her, there's I guess like I guess there are diaries from Queen Victoria. It seems like she was very smitten with Prince Albert, and they had what seemed to be a good relationship. So, but yeah, she took his death very hard. I do just want to make a clarifying statement here. Uh, while Queen Victoria popularized the wearing of black, she did not start the tradition of wearing black during a mourning period. Many cultures around the world have worn black throughout history to signify mourning. In fact, I think the earliest documented evidence that I am aware of of someone doing this is from the Roman era. And it should also be noted that black is not the only color appropriated by a culture to signify death. For example, in Japan, white is often worn to funerals and by Shinto priests when conducting someone's final rites. All this to say that basically during this time, Wearing black and other mourning practices that we will come to in a few moments were popularized because Queen Victoria was, quite simply, the trendsetter of the era, and she spent the last several decades of her life in a period of mourning. So we know what the leader of the British Empire was wearing during this time of her life, but what about her subjects? As I mentioned, Queen Victoria did not create the tradition of wearing black, but she did popularize it, and during the Victorian era, the upper middle crust underwent several periods of mourning. Some sources say that there were only two, while others say that there were three or four distinct periods where different types of clothing or an acceptable amount of jewelry might slowly be added as time went on. But, you know, again, this is differs between socioeconomic class, where you are in the British Empire, if you're in Australia, you might practice this differently than somebody in British Columbia, Canada, etc, etc. Some people would slowly add white or pale purple to their wardrobe as they underwent the various phases of mourning, but again, this is not universal, and as I mentioned, everyone mourns differently. I have heard about the purple thing before, mostly because I will shamelessly admit that I watched Bridgerton a lot, and I think they mentioned purple mourning uh, having to do with one of the characters whose 
partner died. I don't know. I yeah. might be misremembering, but I did. I have heard about the purple thing. I think Bridgerton like, is also Regency era as well. That like 18, is true. Early 1800s. Yes, I might be mixing yeah. uh, mixing knowledge in my brain. I mean, I think that, you know, if it was if it was in practice in the beginning of the 1800s of the 19th century, like, there's no reason why, you know, vestiges of that uh, practice continued later on. I genuinely had a hard time, like, I was trying to nail down exactly what the uh, mourning periods were, because, like, there was one, one source I found that was, like, you've got second mourning, you've got, uh, like these different periods, but I was having a hard time finding like a primary source to like corroborate. So I think everything that I could find about the different periods is from a secondary source, but yeah, it would have been really cool to have been able to find like a Victorian morning manual or something like that. But um, right, that would have been very instructive. Yeah. I th- well, that would have honestly been its own episode, like just going through the manual if it exists and maybe it does. And I just, couldn't find it. Maybe. I, it sounds like they were dressing their way through the ace flag. <laughs> like through the black and the yeah. white and the purple. Just need some yeah. gray in there. So yeah, like for example, just to kind of illustrate how different people mourn differently, uh, Queen Victoria never wore color again after Albert died, but you know, not everybody did that. In general though, like the kind of common, most common through line through all of this is wearing black after the death of a monarch or a loved one was what was expected of you. Not wearing black would kind of be like, okay, well, are you actually in mourning? And it's also just a sign of respect as well, even if, you know, your coworker died and you thought that he was kind of an asshole or, you know, whatever. <laughs> the wealthy would go and buy new clothing when they were in mourning. Uh, they would perhaps go to a shop that sold items specifically made for mourning. Uh, like one I found while I was perusing the Victoria and Albert Museum collection uh, online, unfortunately not in person. The Peter Robinson Warehouse in London, which actually sold everyday clothes, also had like an entire subsection dedicated just to morning clothes, which was really interesting. Kind of reminded me of like a modern department store where you have like a maternity section, but in this, in the case of this, you have a morning section which is really awful the opposite of a maternity section yeah yeah, exactly it also isn't hard to find like i know i just was bemoaning the fact that i couldn't find primary sources about like the periods of mourning but it is not hard to find primary sources in the form of advertisements newspapers fashion plates that depict morning clothes as a part of everyday life like if you want to know what people were wearing you can you've got tons of resources, um, but when it comes when it came to actually figuring out like at three weeks we'd put a lavender sash around our waist and you know I couldn't find details on that and I'm sure that they exist, um, but the point of this podcast is you know not to become or to try and become an expert on a topic in a very short period of time and sometimes we you know we don't get to be full experts on everything so that being said. If this type of thing interests you and you want to learn more about where people were buying their morning fits in a specific area, um, definitely check out local newspapers and see if you can find uh, an archive or anything that has like the 19th century archived versions of that newspaper. Because I guarantee you that there, you will find like tons of really awesome 
uh, morning clothing advertisements and things. Consumer culture. Consumer culture. I wonder if the Bay had a morning clothing section. For those who don't live in Canada, the Hudson's Bay Company was originally a fur trading company way back in the day and is still a department store to the day. It's gone through many forms, but it's been around for a long time. I have no doubt that they probably sold, uh, at the very least, like the fabric for morning clothing. Yeah. Just because it was so common, but... Yeah, the black beavers. (laughs) But of course, you know, we're talking about people who could afford a new outfit every time somebody died. We're talking about the wealthy. But if you couldn't afford, you know, a new morning fit to show up at the funeral with, you would dye your existing clothing using blends of indigo and other pigments to achieve a darker hue in the fabric of the clothes that you already owned. So if you had a favorite red dress that you wore every day and, you know, a family member died, sorry, but it's black now. I don't want to give up wearing this dress, so I'm just going to dye it black like my soul. (laughs) Oh my god. Love it. We've talked a lot about clothing now, though, and while there, like I said, there's probably a lot more to say about morning clothing, I'm sure that there is a, like, fashion historian who is shaking their fist at me right now and is going, why didn't you talk about X, Y, and Z? This is, I only have uh, so much time and I want to move on to the second item on my list of Victoria morning material culture. When traversing through the expectations surrounding death in this era, women would often add jewelry or other accessories when entering into secondary phases of mourning. Jet was an item that was popularized once again by Queen Victoria. Jet, for those who don't know, is a rich black gemstone that was used to adorn brooches, necklaces, rings, and all manner of other fineries during this period, worn most often by mourners because, you know, like the clothing, it was black, it was significant to death, and it, you know, tied in with the outfit. Grieving, important. Fashion, more important. So I actually get really excited about Jet because the first museum exhibition that I ever worked on, which was the Families Exhibition at the Royal British Columbia Museum, I got to work with an item that we believed was an Irish Jet morning brooch and it had three little four-leaf clovers. But I did some research on this little object and discovered some a couple of really interesting things. I learned that items like this were sold by local Irish people in order to help raise money for the IRA. And I also learned that there was like a a knockoff version of Jet. uh, And that was what this little brooch was. It was actually made not of Jet, but of bog oak or bog wood. Uh, Do either of you know what bog oak or bog wood is? No. I'm going to take a guess and say that it's wood that's been dragged into a bog and petrified or preserved by being in a bog, which we know from bog bodies is very good at um, preserving organic material. You're absolutely right. When a tree fossilizes, it goes through a series of transformations, depending on when you pull the wood out of the ground or out of the bog. You might get coal, you might get jet, or you possibly might get bog wood. So bogwood is fairly common, especially in areas with lots of bogs and anaerobic environments, namely areas like the United Kingdom and Ireland. 
and as a result it became a cheaper alternative to jet during this era. So if you take a peruse around museums or antique shops, you might find something like this that at first looks kind of like jet, but it lacks the luster and shine of a real gemstone. And if you look closely enough, you can find the grain of the tree in the piece of jewelry. Cool. I had pieces of petrified redwood growing up, so I'm, I'm fairly familiar with uh, trees that have become rock. Um, <laughs> and honestly, to me, I'm like... I'm not a Victorian in mourning, but the idea of having some bogwood stuff is very uh, enticing. Honestly, just like look at some museum collections. There's tons of examples out there and there's some really pretty pieces. Like it's, it is, I think, like it doesn't have the same kind of economic punch, I guess, as, as, as a, a gemstone, but I still think it looks quite nice. So, um, and I think it's honestly probably a little easier to work with that you would think. But probably and like ecologically fascinating. The value of gemstones is subjective anyways. We've just decided that gemstones are worth more than petrified trees. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Which given how long it takes to petrify a tree in the hyper specific conditions, this is a complete tangent, but I'm like I'm big on petrified tree goods cuz they're really cool. Not that we should be actively petrifying trees in any way to produce consumer products. Not that I think we know how to petrify trees. <laughs> Mariah just thinks they're neat. I just think they're neat. <laughs> so number two and three on my list are going to kind of blend together. So we had jewelry and accessories for number two. And number three was hair. So we're going to kind of get in that, but we're also going to talk about uh, another type of jewelry that was worn by those in mourning that was decorated with human hair. Often the hair of the deceased would be used to create elaborate coils and wreaths that would either be placed behind glass and mounted on a wall, or it could be sealed into a locket, a ring, a necklace, a bracelet, or other type of jewelry so that the mourner could carry a piece of their beloved lost one forever. Sometimes the wall hangings would be worked on for years, with the hair of newly deceased family members joining the wreath years after the first strands were coiled into shape. And coming back to Queen Victoria, she allegedly carried around a locket that had a lock of Prince Albert's hair in it, though I believe that this was given to her while he was still alive, but she allegedly wore this locket day and night after he passed away. But TLDR, people were putting uh, dead people hair in personal jewelry and making wall decorations out of it. Could you imagine? I just had this thought, like, you know how like macrame kind of came back? Could you imagine if people were like macrameing with human hair? It's I believe there are it some is, momenti or memento mori artists just, who specifically do jewelry like uh rings and necklaces and brooches and stuff that are um hair and teeth cast in resin or like encased in resin mm -hmm. as yeah. modern day interpretations of Victorian uh, memento mori uh, jewelry and accessories. I feel like the, the hair is yeah. not quite as disturbing as the teeth. Right? But I mean, I don't know about you guys, but I know that my mom still has my brother and I's first lost baby tooth. Yeah, I don't think so. <laughs> I, I couldn't. I couldn't tell you honestly. I don't know. I think 
my mom has some of my brother's hair from his first haircut but it was more to signify his first haircut than anything else. <laughs> Not like his Right, but like it goes in the baby book or in the like little yeah. shaped plastic box that you get from the dentist. Uh, Memento Mori is what a lot of these items are referred to. It's a Latin phrase that basically means remember death or remember you will die. Um, and like there's, a, there's different interpretations of it, but... Um, Victorian morning material culture is often referred to as like memento mori or just, you know, items that make you remember people that you've lost, much like um, lockets of hair and hair wall hangings and things like that. Let me just make a, a hair wreath for your front door. <laughs> I'm in mourning. Christmas. Friendship bracelet. Uh, if you do ever happen to have the opportunity to handle one of these items, these hair wreaths or uh, anything like that, I would be sure to wash your hands after, as the Victorians often treated items like this with arsenic, presumably for their preservation, because they treated a lot of furs and taxidermy with it as well, so definitely be aware of that when shopping 19th century vintage. Are you guys having fun? I'm having a lot of fun with this topic. Like, it feels very me. Like, <laughs> it absolutely is. Yeah. yeah. We now come to the final item on my list of memento mori or Victorian morning material culture stationery, which Janine already knows all about because I've babbled it to her about it. Um, I also have a YouTube video on my YouTube channel if you want to go check that out, all about Victorian calling cards. Anyway, self plug over. As we've kind of gotten away from clothing, which is kind of a little bit more universal, you know, the rich, the poor, kind of everybody could wear black. Um, and we've kind of moved away from that a little bit because this item is kind of restricted to the upper classes for a few different reasons. Uh, for one reason, only the upper crust could afford to have custom stationery made with monogrammed initials and all that. Uh, but secondly, Literacy was still not super widespread, so what use is stationery to someone who can't write or read? Stationery was, like many aspects of the Victorian era, wrapped in etiquette. There were strict rules surrounding the size, shape, and delivery of calling cards, sizes of letters that were deemed appropriate, and mourning practices would also come in and affect this etiquette as well. So, if you're familiar with a calling card, and if you're not, a calling card is a small, basically business card, but it's for you as a person. And you, if you wanted to go and call on a friend or if you wanted to go and see a friend, you would have to pass your card off to the servant at their door. And then if they wanted to call back on you or if they wanted to see you, they would send a card back. Um, and there were there was various etiquette surrounding folding a corner over and, you know, writing notes on them and women's were much larger than men's, etc, etc, etc. But if you were in mourning, your calling card that had your full name on it and your title, it would be wrapped in black. So the border would be framed in a black ink. So the thicker that the black border was, the kind of deeper mourning you were in or the more recent your loss was. The collection that Janine and I work with, we do have an example of one that has like about a third of the card is just the black border. So it shows that the lady who the card belonged to uh, had probably just recently lost what we believe to be her husband. 
and it was probably fairly recent because there was that uh, significant black border. But you would also find this black border on other types of stationery as well. So monogrammed letter paper was common. So you would have uh, your special paper with either your house or perhaps your name and title. And if you were in mourning, you would get a special paper made that not only had your usual, you know, title and things or your house, but it would also have the black border. And this was used to not only signify that you were in mourning, but also to deliver bad news. As even the letter, like the, the envelope that a letter would be delivered in, would sometimes be wrapped in this black border. And it was meant to kind of give the reader, like the recipient of this letter, a bit of a heads up. So it's like, oh, I have a black border. If I receive this like in a social setting or something, I know that I need to go and excuse myself or save it for later because it's probably going to have some upsetting news in it. I think this is really neat, honestly, uh, especially in this era of social media where, you know, you're kind of accessible to everybody all the time and you can kind of receive bad news in the middle of your workday or anything, just like via a Facebook message. So I kind of like the idea of having a little bit of a heads up for bad news. Not even a message. It could just yeah. be someone posts it and for the whole world to see and that's how you find out. Oh, not that I'm on Facebook, but... By the way, so-and-so is dead. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I've received a number of text messages that are just like, BT Dubs, family member died. Uh, not great. Yeah. The thing about text messages is they come up as a preview of the first little bit of text. Right. Which is the worst kind of heads up. You don't even fully also, open the message. <laughs> and you, yeah. yeah, you just get a, a pop-up that's like, by the way, bad news. So-and-so, dot, dot, dot. And you're like, ah, oh, fuck. Yeah. Which I wonder if that was the same feeling for someone being somewhere and then receiving a letter with black edges and it being like, this is finding out someone you know has died. And that moment yeah. of like, hey, can I talk to you about something? No worries, we'll talk about it later. And you're like, no, you need to tell me right now. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> would you have um, would you have preferred to have that news delivered in a letter that you had a a heads up that it was heavy news and you could excuse yourself? Oh, absolutely. I'm sitting here thinking about how it was nice to have an etiquette around receiving communication and also they couldn't get to you at all fucking times. Yeah. Especially if you were in a list living in a time of like massive uh, tumult, like if there was a war or a plague or something going mm -hmm. around and every time you get a letter from Aunt Cheryl it's with this blackboard and you're like I swear to god, if someone else has died yeah, <laughs> like I'm running out of black clothes that I can easily wash yeah yeah slash this hair wreath has already been redone four times <laughs> I kind of so I, I know to some extent the, the etiquette around mourning could be a little restrictive as far as like, mm. for example, like a woman whose husband passed away and she wanted to be maintain that uh, social facade of being a dutiful wife and uh, a loving wife. And so the, the time period and the length of time that she would be remaining in mourning, perhaps 
outwardly she would remain in mourning longer than she would feel like she would need to, but it's like the social mm-hmm. etiquette of like paying dues and paying respect to your husband or whoever has passed away. But I do really like the upfront net the upfrontness about saying, Hey, I'm in mourning. Like the black border yeah. on my card or the black border on this letter that I'm writing you is just me being open and honest about the fact that I'm not in a great emotional state. And I feel like Please we're very be nice to me. Yeah. I feel like we're a little disconnected from being that in touch with our emotions nowadays. So I feel like yeah. morning stationery would be pretty sweet. Uh, just one little note on that. Um, I guess women, this was just one th- one thing that I read, again, it's, I don't think universal, or it's definitely not universal. But I think after a woman's husband died, like as part of like the mourning phases, uh, one of the things that I read was that women were actually kind of meant to like, isolate themselves, like you didn't see anybody, like you had the funeral, and then you went home, and you stayed there by yourself with the kids or, you know, whatever. And you, I guess you, you were kind of like, you know, once you reach marriageable age, you enter society. And I think once your husband dies, you kind of exit from society kind of temporarily until, you know, you're out of your, you're past the acceptable amount of time. Um, And you're ready to get married again. (laughs) (laughs) Possibly. I mean, yeah. Yeah. Good, Good things and bad things with every culture and every period of time, you know, it's never a case of, oh, things are better and or worse now. They're just different. Yeah. Uh, right? So, like, the treatment of, of widows in mourning, we would probably say not great. And just, like, being isolated in grief is not a great place to be. But also having the means to be like, I'm in mourning, please be gentle with me for as long as you needed is such a, like, a breath of fresh air almost considering nowadays you get like one or two days of bereavement leave yeah. for most jobs and then you're expected to go back to work uh, and there's no outward signs so you're having to tell people repeatedly or just keep that to yourself and try not to show any signs of grieving which as we've discussed many times grieving is complicated and it's long term and it's not linear And so having to, in our modern day, really keep that either under wraps or having to open the wound repeatedly really Mm -hmm. doesn't leave a lot of space for processing. And in the Victorian times, right, they were still doing home funerals as well, right? So they were still kind of managing their own dead, which I think is also part of it, is that nowadays we don't manage our own dead. And we also don't have this public face of mourning. Well, that's... That kind of brings it back to something that I've definitely said on the podcast before is that something that I think one of my anthropology profs said is that you've got two different types of societies, basically. You have a society where death is kind of in the fore, like it's not in the forefront, but it's, you know, it's talked about, it's accepted, but sex is kind of behind closed doors. You don't talk about sex, but death is kind of, you know, totally fine talking about death and, you know, bereavement. Um, 
and so I think that's very much the Victorian era. You know, they were very uptight about sex. They were very, you know, modest. Um, but then death was everywhere. It was in their stationery. It was in their home decor. It was in the way that they dressed. You know, it was in all of these things. Whereas today, you know, sex is everywhere. You know, we talk about sex very casually. It's in our music. It's, um, you know, it's in a lot of our media, like most fucking HBO shows these days. It's hard to not see an ass on TV these days. <laughs> if you look at any censorship laws about like what is acceptable breast viewing. Yeah, but like coming back around to it, back to like what you said before, it's like we don't talk, we don't allow for bereavement. We don't talk about bereavement, you know? You're kind of expected to just like, you know, either deal with it on your own or your small, you know, family unit, whether that's blood family or, you know, found family. But, you know, it's it's death is kept behind closed doors like a lot of the time like open casket funerals aren't always a thing you know like quite literally a body behind you know a closed door so i just think that's really interesting uh and how you bring that up yeah it's i actually just got my second memorial tattoo last weekend so Mm. which i guess is not a type of memento mori they had in the victorian period but i think is maybe a version of it that exists nowadays I'd say so, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I guess the question is, too, is, like, would would any of us ever, in, in a different world, I guess, engage with Victorian-style Memento Mori? Like, the would either of you use, like, the stationery, the hair wreaths, the full black clothing? Like, do you think there's any aspect of that that you would cotton on to if that was... If we lived in a weird mashup society in which all things are go all the time. So to what you said earlier about your new tattoo, like, you know, I think that we we haven't left that practice behind. Like, memorial tattoos, I think, are a great, great night, or 21st century example of a memento mori because tattoos are kind of more common. Um, and, you know, we all, like I said, everybody mourns in their own way. I'm sure that there were things that were kind of regional to the British colony in Australia or the British colony in, you know, you know, everywhere, right? Like everywhere is going to have their own little different take on the British upper <laughs> upper crust, you know, a culture. Uh, personally, though, like I, I definitely, I guess... <laughs> The weirdest thing I think is the one that I'm kind of down with is like the lock of hair. Like I gave Will a lock of hair because we were like my partner Will and I were long distance for many many years, um, and I gave him a lock of hair and I think I kept a lock of his hair somewhere. I think that those are both like gone. <laughs> They're at the bottom of a drawer somewhere. But I would like you know if I were to pass on, I'd say yeah, like take as much. Don't cut all of my hair off, you know. Like, but take what you need for a locket or something. And I would absolutely love to have, you know, something. Like, it's kind of the most non-disgusting part of the body that you could take of somebody, like, of somebody that you love without it being kind of, like, icky, I guess. At least within our own, with well, within our own kind of cultural, like, acceptable, acceptability of the human body. You know, like some cultures, like, um, I forget which, I think it's, 
I went to a museum exhibit about it a couple of years ago. But, you know, there are cultures where, you know, you, you keep the whole body on display for, you know, a while. But to us, that's kind of like, personally, I don't want my loved ones on display in my living room. Uh, death behind closed doors. Like, I think that, you know, a lock of hair is something that I would definitely probably go out of my way to try and get and keep and treasure. What about you, Janine? Okay, so we started with clothing. Um, I yeah. would definitely do the colored clothing. I have, I've lost a couple people close to me, but I think it's been a couple years now and I wasn't an adult. Um, mm. So I don't know if I was able to think so deeply about it. Um, but I do feel like the clothing thing is just a great way of expressing it um without saying anything <laughs> right and like everybody understands you're wearing black i guess people wear black other otherwise but like there's there's a somberness about it that that doesn't need any words to convey especially if the person who sees you wearing black knows that you've had a loss <laughs> recently um i was just gonna say i think that's the the one reason i didn't immediately go to clothing is because i'm just like i wear black almost every single day that being said I would, you know, if it was, like, somebody super close to me, like, I would pull out a veil and, you know, because I don't want to be seen, I'm going to be fucking ugly crying under there for a couple days and I don't want anybody to see me. And it's, I guess, a part of that isolation, too, is, like, sometimes you just, sometimes, you know, to the benefit of, you know, a widow wanting to be, might want to be alone after her husband dies, you know, you might want to be alone with your grief before... You either share it with other people or allow other people to approach you. But yeah, just, I think also the, going back to it, yeah, I wear black almost every day. Black is my fav one of my favorite wardrobe colors. Um, so I, that's kind of why I was like, a hair lock would be a good. Um, the accessories, they seem cool, but not really my thing. I don't, I'm not usually a, an accessory person in general, so doesn't seem I don't have like a an immediate emotional connection like yeah if I would if I lost someone that's what I would do um the hair thing okay maybe not for me I can see for other people maybe somebody would want my hair <laughs> uh, I don't know um I don't know but the stationery also seems pretty cool um <laughs> as I said it's just a way of signifying, like, I need that gentleness and I need that space without having to say it. I, I like the unspokenness of the, the clothing and the stationery, like the black-bordered stationery, I think. Um, yeah. Hopefully I cool. don't have to find out anytime soon. <laughs> yeah. You're hoping not. It would be cool if, like there was like a setting on your text message that you could have a black border, like, like the, like the, the 21st century equivalent, you know, something that just shows like your, you know, your icon shows up with like a, a black ring around it or something. I yeah. don't know. Yeah. Well, it's interesting trying to think about how, but like the, the idea of like calling cards and stuff, I literally have on my desk the like program that was handed out, handed out at my grandmother's funeral in 2014 and i have several of these still kicking around so there's there's aspects of that of the the accessories that you keep 
around long term now all kind of more, more in the form of tattoos and that sort of thing and the stationary now as the kind of uh, like programs you mm-hmm. end up with at funerals if it is a funeral that does programs sort of thing instead of the stationary and that there is that kind of changeover and I think some people will still wear like a black armband for mourning yeah. partially because it's hard to tell the difference between Victorian mourning clothing reinterpreted for the 21st century and goth fashion yeah because <laughs> I think there's definitely a connection potentially there between Victorian mourning clothing and trends in goth uh, fashions but I'm not a goth nor a Victorian in mourning so what can I say um yeah, it's, it's interesting to see the reinterpretations and preservation of aspects of that type of mm-hmm. mourning material culture. I think that memento mori have always kind of been a thing. Like, we did, like, especially, like, hair lockets and things. Like, these things, like, we're talking about, like I said, especially with the black and things, like, a lot of these practices, I think maybe the stationary is probably the most like just like uniquely Victorian thing. Um, and even then I'm not sure, but I have no doubt like definitely hair was kept like, you know, in the Roman era by the Ottomans, you know? And I think just having that tangibility of having something to, you know, hold, you know, even just like, as like, a, mm-hmm. you know, like something tactile. We really care about realia as people as as real objects it's it's the joy of somebody bringing you back something from another country and being like this moved across unimaginable distances to be here and therefore it has extra significance right the 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 reality attached to a thing adds significance the same way that the person from whom it was grown by which is a weird (laughs) way to say it but like yeah, hair, teeth, that sort of thing. Like, it's it's a real tangible piece. Mm-hmm. Unlike I think, a photo. And I think that is a big part of the reason why, like, I get so ex- well. I know it's a reason why I get so excited about you know objects, because objects are a lot of the time reflections of not only the person who made it, but the person who owned it, and the next person who owned it, and you know. And they can tell the stories of somebody's grief. They can tell the, the stories of somebody's life and the people who loved them and the people that they loved, you know? Like, there's objects, you know, are... No other species really has objects. Like, we know now that, like, chimpanzees and crows and certain other species have, you know, they have tools. But... We're really the only species that has stuff, you know, and different cultures have different types of stuff. But then there's kind of a through line that we all kind of come back to, like hair lockets or, you know, keeping a piece of hair or keeping just like a personal item. Like, you know, like, you know, sometimes, you know, you might have your dad's watch or, you know, your mom's necklace, your grandmother's, you know, hair piece or something. So I think... Yeah, this is, this whole episode is kind of just, we're looking specifically at 
things that the Victorians kept, but different cultures are going to have different things and we're going to have different, we've got tattoos now in the 21st century and we've got Facebook memorials and, you know, things that were impossible to have 200 years ago. That is the end of my list though. We went through clothing, accessories and jewelry, uh, hair and stationery in the Victorian era. As we have discussed though, this is not uh, exhaustive of what a memento mori is. These are just some examples from the Victorian era. And you know, it's, it's a future, it's an ongoing discussion of what makes a memento mori in the 21st century. And, you know, if there is something that you think is a really cool memento mori that you have for your loved ones, reach out to us on Twitter or Instagram and tell us about it. But thank you very much, mortals, for tuning in and listening. Uh, remember death, memento mori, and we will see you next time. Mortals Podcast is created, hosted, and edited by three morbidly curious individuals, Christia, Mariah, and Janine. You can find us on Twitter at Podcast Mortals, on Instagram at Mortals underscore podcast, and on our website, mortalspodcast.com. Show your support, access bonus content, and help us keep ads out of your ears by joining our community at patreon.com slash mortals podcast. Our music is A Mermaid's Eulogy by Etienne Roussel. Thanks for listening, mortals. Take care of yourselves out there. Goodbye! <laughs> yep. <laughs> there it goes.